Have you ever felt a twinge of worry about AI taking over your job or diluting your creativity? Well, what if you could turn that fear into creative fuel? We've just published an amazing new ebook called The Four Keys to Success in an AI World. And this is more than just a guide. It's a deep exploration into the human skills that AI can't touch. The skills that are essential for standing out and thriving, no matter how much technology evolved. We're talking about real differentiators here, like creativity, emotional intelligence, critical thinking, and much more. Inside, you'll find actionable insights and strategies to develop these skills, whether you're a creative person, a business person, or just simply someone who loves personal development. This isn't a story about tech taking over. It's a story of human creativity thriving alongside AI. Picture this, AI as your creative co-pilot, not just as a tool, but a collaborator that enhances your unique human skills. The Four Keys ebook will show you exactly how to do that and view AI in a new way that empowers you instead of overshadows you. Transform your creative potential today. Head over to unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys. Use the number four, K-E-Y-S. That's unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys and download your free copy. And what I want to do is sort of highlight the nuances that exist within these, within the communities, within the larger picture. So that, you know, when we see a film and, and we see an Indian character, it's not just like, oh, Mr. Chatterjee from Gujarat. Because you know, Mr. the person from Gujarat will never be called Mr. Chatterjee. And I want to get this right. So like, for instance, and I'll tell you like Sherlock, the TV show. Mm. Uh, I can't remember which episode it is, but I think it's one of the earlier ones. It's at the season one or two, where they have this character who falls in love with the landlady, you know, like a, a vague boyfriend character in the background. And they have this, this guy who's apparently... A, a Pakistani called Mr. Gupta. I'm, 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 not, I'm not sure if I'm getting the exact details right, yeah. but it's something like that. It had an Indian name with a Pakistani background. And I was thinking, well, uh, yeah, like Mr. Gupta from Islamabad or something. <laughs> right. You, you can't do that. You have to call him something that makes sense, you know? And um, and so those are the things that has, have been bothering me for a while now that, oh, the details need to be right. I'm Srini Rao, and this is the Unmistakable Creative Podcast, where you get a window into the stories and insights of the most innovative and creative minds who've started movements, built thriving businesses, written best-selling books, and created insanely interesting art. For more, check out our 500-episode archive at unmistakablecreative.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is PlushCare. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, 
HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Hey, Dave. Yeah, Randy. Since we founded Bombas, we've always said our socks, underwear, and T-shirts are super soft. Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft. Or disgustingly cozy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombas. Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself and for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow, did we just write an ad? Yes. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. A lot can happen in three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. As creators, we're always on the move. Whether it's a live podcast event, a pop-up shop, or a workshop, we're constantly interacting with community, and that's where Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe comes in. Imagine this, you're at a live event, a listener loves your merch, or a participant wants to sign up for your course on the spot. With Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe, you can accept their payments right there and then, right from your iPhone so there's no extra hardware or no delays. Total game changer. It's not just for creators. Any business owner can do this. It's about making transactions smoother and much more personal, growing your business in your way. We've been using Stripe for our products and courses for a long time, and now with Tap to Pay on iPhone, you can take your business to the next level too. So visit stripe.com slash tap iPhone to learn more. Remember folks, with tap to pay on iPhone and Stripe, your business is always at your fingertips. So Vesna, welcome to The Unmistakable Creative. Thanks so much for taking the time to join us. Thank you for having me. Yeah, so it is my pleasure to have you here. I actually was uh, introduced to your story by you writing in, telling me a little bit about the fact that um, you are of Indian descent and you're a filmmaker, which is, in my mind, a very unconventional career path for people who are of Indian descent. So it immediately intrigued me. But before we get there, I want to start by asking you, where in the world did you grow up and what impact did where you grew up end up having on your life and your career? Oh, that's such an interesting question. That's a tough question. Um, so I grew up, I was born in Calcutta in India, in eastern India. And I uh, lived there uh, for the first uh, 18 years of my life. Uh, I left Calcutta after high school to go to college in New Delhi. And uh, both those uh, both those geographical locations had a pretty big impact on who I was or you know, back in the 20, when I was in the, my 20s, uh, my, my mom is a huge influence in, in you know, who I have become. Uh, she's a feminist um, and a stay-at-home mom, but a super strong, she has a very strong voice. And um, that impacted how I grew up and how I developed confidence in myself. As you know, in, growing up as a girl in India, there's a strong... Um, not, I'd say, yeah, there's pressure to, to conform, to be conventional, to be the good girl and, and, and listen to your elders. And I don't know if, or at least in my experience, boys who were growing up in my, around me did not have the same amount of pressure. But I was lucky. I was extremely lucky that neither of my parents felt the need to, to curb my, you know, outspokenness or, um, and, and they were fine with it. So that helped a lot 
as a, a young teenager to to have confidence in myself and even when the things I w- did weren't panning out mm-hmm. and um, and then I um, going you know like uh, going on that trajectory you could probably guess that when I graduated high school um, even though all the students around me with you know I had I had pretty good grades but there was no pressure from my parents to say, oh, you must go into, you know, sciences so you can become a doctor or, or an engineer and all that. And um, and I instead chose to uh, study Japanese, which, again, was an unheard of major back in the early 90s, for especially for a girl, because when boys did things that were a little weird and it took them places that nobody had gone before, you know, eyebrows were raised, but it wasn't. It wasn't like a shock and and devastation. Whereas when I told, when my extended family found out through my parents that I was going to go live in uh, New Delhi by myself at 18, everybody was, there was an uproar. And like, you know, first of all, what is she going to do? What kind of career is even possible with Japanese? And how can you let your daughter live so far away? And um, it was, it was interesting. So, but I was happy and I was lucky to have my parents support. And I did that. The interesting thing about living by yourself, and this is something I don't know if Americans, American teenagers and, and young adults realize, that this we take this for granted in this country, you know, that of course you're going to grow up, of course you're going to do your own thing, and, and you have to become your own person and think for yourself. For me, this was a huge privilege that I could live in a place where I make the decisions, you know, simple things like whether I want to do laundry or not, you know, and and figuring out what's for breakfast. It's all on you that there's no parent in the background taking care of that. Um, As an Indian in Delhi, this was not common. And um, that was those four years. So actually those three years from uh, the, because in India, undergrad is three years. And uh, those three years were fundamental in shaping me in you know how who do I want to be and I have chosen this unconventional path with a weird major that nobody has done before me and um, how does that decide you know how how would that affect not only what kind of career I'll have but what kind of person I'll be and and also who I'll be with as you know my friends and and close confidants and things like that so those three years by myself in JNU, the, the university I attended, it's actually pretty well known in India. It's Jawaharlal Nehru University in New Delhi, and it's a it's a very it's a very leftist oriented campus. The student politics was, you know, that was the thing to do, uh, which was amazing, and I, I loved being there because it makes you think. Um, so that was the three years, and then the next big change that came was um, at the end of my undergrad, I won a scholarship to Japan through the to their education ministry to go live in Tokyo for a year and a half and um, and you know I had if if you if I had thought that the last three years really helped me grow and shape and think who I am and who I want to be boy was that you know that was just the beginning so when I moved from Delhi to Tokyo that was a whole new um, level of of learning who I was because I was both presenting myself, but in a way, I was also presenting a whole culture and a whole a whole range of identities in Tokyo with other international students, both in the dorm, in my classroom, and our. It was a it's, it was a very interesting mix of um, 
people from all around the world. But also, I guess when they create classrooms, they take into account, you know, students from different backgrounds and different skill sets and how they will interact with each other. So that to me was another fundamentally you know, shifting identities, negotiating identities, becoming, you know, evolving in a whole new way. Uh, so I guess those three points are probably, you know, early childhood to young adulthood. Those three locations were were my my highlights. Wow. Um, you know, so you're from. You said you were born in Kolkata. I'm assuming you're Bengali. Uh, I am. And so I'm very curious about this because I've been trying to to get an answer to this question, and now I finally can ask it to somebody in a context where it's appropriate. Why is it? They, I, I've noticed for some reason that almost all of the the prominent artists in India, um, you know, in any field, seem to all be Bengali. And I've noticed all my friends who are Bengali grew up with like a significant amount of exposure to the arts yes. when I compare it to my own childhood. Uh, and, and I'm curious why that. Is. What is it about Bengalis that that is, you know, is it just part of the way you guys are raised? I'm, I'm really genuinely curious why that's the case. Oh, um, you know, honestly, I don't know. Um, but I can tell you personally, yes, there was a huge emphasis on arts and literature in, in my family, in our household. Um, and uh, if it was okay if I got, <laughs> this is unusual, but if it, it was okay if I got a math problem wrong, but if I didn't catch a literary reference at the dinner table, that was unpardonable. Um, and to this day, I, I'm telling you, to this day, we go, I go visit my parents in India every two years. If I miss a reference or if I don't know what's happening in the arts, like in literature or in films, um, it's not it's not something that I will hear the end of. Mm-hmm. Like, how could you not know? So I guess the uh, the reason, I mean, if I, and this is a huge generalization, I, I, I hate painting in broad stereotypes, but um, there is a long heritage, there's a rich heritage, you know, with, starting with Rabindranath Tagore, starting with uh, Satyajit Ray's films, and even before that, his, his dad and his grandfather, who were all painters and, and poets and writers, there's a her- heritage that one can draw from. And, um, and because there is a great emphasis on, in, in, it used to be in schools, I don't know how the education curriculum has changed in the last 20 years, but back when I was a kid, um, it was important to know the basics, like the, 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 the grades. You had to know the masters um, in literature, in art, in film, and it wasn't it wasn't just Bengali masters. Like I uh, grew up learning both. I read Tagore and Shakespeare simultaneously, and we were asked to compare and contrast. And you know, it was it was a very interesting, it was very um, rich experience. Uh, one that, as I grow older and I remember, I realize how fortunate I was because at that time I completely took it for granted. That well, of course, and I even complain like, why do I have to read this text that was written in the you know 1700s? That it's so difficult, and the language makes no sense because um, archaic Bengali is just like any other archaic language where <laughs> you have to you need a dictionary to translate. So uh, it wasn't fun. Um, but now I look back on it and I think, boy, wasn't that wasn't that an amazing experience? Hmm. So I don't know if that answers your question, but yeah, I would, yeah, it does. It does. Um, yeah. So tell me how you get from Tokyo to becoming a filmmaker. Oh my God! So Tokyo was the first step uh, towards a, a, a career in teaching Japanese. That was going to be. That was what I had decided I was going to be. I was going to be a professor um, in Japanese, and um, so I did an, I did a degree uh, my at the university in Tokyo, Ochanomizu, and then I came back to JNU to do a masters. 
after which I took the GRE and uh, came for grad school to the United States. Um, the difference that there was, I had two options. I could go and do grad school in Japan or in the United States. And I chose the US because living in Japan, I loved the, the material comforts. I loved how safe everything was. I mean, the streets of Tokyo back in the day, you know, a woman could walk at 10 p.m. and there was not even a a question of any kind of risk. You know, that was the best part, that you sort of assume that you're absolutely safe. Um, I loved that part. The part I didn't love so much was that women were not taken very seriously when it came to matters of, like, serious work. Women were seen, I mean, most offices that I visited, that I interviewed at, they were seen as people who you could help, who could assist, who could perhaps make tea but were not the decision makers, were not the department heads. And um, and as a 21-year-old, outspoken, brazen Indian girl, I knew that I couldn't take that, that that would not be something I would be able to sustain. So I was like, okay, well, Japan is not going to work out as a place to settle down in. And, um, and all the friends I had met um, living in my dorm in Tokyo, all my American friends were, you know, they encouraged me. They were like, this would be a great place for you. So I applied to grad school um, and I got in and I thought, okay, well, clearly one side is looking somewhat discouraging while the other side is, you know, the, the green light is flashing. So that, you know, I don't, I don't, I don't want to say that's a sign, but it was definitely helpful in making a decision. And then I came here for grad school, um, finished my PhD in 2002 in classical Japanese literature and visual culture. And then I got a job and I had a great time teaching Japanese, both that, you know, I taught at the university level, I taught at the high school level. I had a wonderful time. So from age 28 to 40, it was a most amazing career. Um, I love interacting with teenagers and young adults. I think mentally I'm always, I'm always going to stay a teenager, but, um, the difference became that once I turned 40, um, and this is not, I don't want to call it a midlife crisis because it wasn't something that I felt I was lacking in my life. You know, I felt life could, honestly, life could not, could not be better. Everything was working out. I had a great job. I have a great family. Things were perfect. But the thing that was bothering me is that as I taught literature, um, so ancient Japanese literature has a huge visual component to it. Um, you, you study the text, but you also see these paintings that the, uh, the writers created back in the 7th century. And, you, you know, they were trying to create a visual aid to, uh, to embellish their story, to bolster it, which I thought was fantastic. It's like, you know, ancient Japanese cinema. So I would start teaching my students about ancient texts, but then we would veer off into the, the paintings, which were called emaki, and we would talk about how the way the characters were drawn, the way the lines were drawn in the frame, how that was trying to depict a certain emotion. And, um, and so from that point, I got, you know, that's, uh, the whole class got very excited about this whole concept of using a frame to depict emotion. So we, um, to, to apply that theory, we used, we made a, a film with my students and they, it was a, it was a comedy. It was a very short comedy about interviewing people who didn't speak any Japanese. We asked them questions in Japanese and see what answers they gave. And they sort of, you know, then we put them all together. And then in the end, when it was shown to the public, the questions did have a subtitle. So the answers became pretty hilarious. Um, but that was the beginning of a question for myself, like, what do I like doing? What is it that truly gets me excited, you know, to be able to feel alive, to say that this is 
the meaning of what I do and why I do it. And I guess that was when the question started coming in, like, do I like to teach? Do I like texts? Or do I like to, you know, the, the making that film was an amazing experience, both for my kids, but very selfishly for myself. So after that, um, I guess that was, uh, it, it took another year for me to like actually think about it because I like to think I'm, you know, sensible. I'm not always very cautious, but I like to think I'm, I'm thinking things through. So I thought about this decision of what do I want to do because life is short. And this is something I've been saying a lot uh, that life is short and we've got to do the things that are truly meaningful. And it's not enough to say that, oh, this is, you know, it's paying the bills and, and it takes care of things. So why am I complaining? Because if there is a niggling doubt or if there is some sense of discontent, I think it's important that we address that. And um, and this is, a, this is a realization that I have, I, I feel like, you know, my current situation has encouraged me to to think about. Back in back in India, I don't think, if I was living in India, I wouldn't, if, you know, if, if this question came up, it would get quashed very quickly. Like, oh, you don't want to ask yourself those questions. That's just, that's just silliness. But um, I encouraged myself to think that, to answer that question. And that's how I became, the, the answer was basically that if you really like doing films and watching films and making films, then that's what one should be doing. Because, you know, we get one shot at this. So um, so I gave, I guess I, I quit my job uh, a year after I started asking myself these questions. And that was another big, big decision, obviously, because it didn't, you know, it, it impacts not just me, but everybody else around me. And uh, which brings me to the third point that, you know, when, when you say like how, how you became a filmmaker, it's. It was both it was both my own decision, but it was also a very collaborative if effort in the sense one can't just make this decision, especially with you know at that at at forty. You can't just do this without the help and support of a whole network of people and I hope you know, it's it's a collaborative effort. And um and I'm again, you know, super fortunate that both my husband, my kids, nobody thought it was completely crazy that all of a sudden I'm going to go from being a full-time academic to a very part-time filmmaker because when I started making films uh, that's all I wanted to do so that's all I did and filmmaking is it's like a gig thing right it's not a steady nine to five mm -hmm. so that was a big risk like are you going to be okay nobody ever asked me are you going to be okay not getting up in the morning and going to work hmm. nobody asked me that and I say I feel so fortunate that you know, that I didn't get that. Everybody around me were like, great, if that's what you want to do, go do it. Um, so that's how it happened. I did, uh, once I left, I knew that, you know, I love films. I love, I knew that I had stories to tell, that I, things that I wanted to talk about, but I wasn't trained in visual techniques of storytelling. So um, I went and took some classes. And uh, again, you know, you when you when you interact with people around you and you tell them what you're about, and, and I've been very fortunate that every time I open my mouth and tell, and I rant at my friends, like, here's what I think we need to see on screen. Um, People have been encouraging. People have been very supportive and friendly and say, well, you know, you still have ways to go, but go do it. And that was five years ago. So, you know, I think the, the one of the other questions that's come up for me as I was listening to tell this story is, you know, having um, grown up with, you know, similar parents and uh, a pretty, you know, standard set of Indian values of, you know, you know my sister became a doctor, uh, mm -hmm. you know, creativity, the, the kinds of things we're doing. It's nice stuff to have as hobbies. Uh, you know, and I think it's going to change with each generation. And I'm curious, as a parent, like your experience, how has it informed the kinds of things that you will pass on to your kids about careers and meaning and purpose? Oh, so that's such, a, such an important question. So, you know, 
yes, I um, I did have uh, Indian parents do tend to be very practical, you know, and I love that about parenting that my parents and I've seen my friends' parents do that um, you have to be careful in the kind of things you choose to major in because that will determine the rest of your life. And the question also about money, you know, that money is important and money makes things slightly more comfortable. But the thing that I want to tell my my kids is that while money is important, it is equally, if not more important, to feel satisfied, completely satisfied and content with what you're doing at the end of the day. Because um, this is what I learned, that, you know, the happiness that I feel when I see my films on a screen, it's the same happiness I felt when I wrote my first real big term paper in India. And um, and I wasn't, I wasn't, you know, I, I was living in a dorm. It wasn't, I was eating ramen every day. So it wasn't like a five-star life. So that part, the, the financial comfort part, I think adjusts if the mental happiness quotient is high you know that that kind of works out is my is my feeling but um and you know this is a very personal question too so i guess my kids will learn that you know you have to do the things that make you happy and if that means becoming a painter then you become a painter knowing fully well that the life of a painter is very different from the life of a ceo and and you you've got to take responsibility for that you know that i take responsibility for the choices i'm making that yes i right now currently when people ask me what do you do my question is or 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 are you you know can you can you meet me at a such and such a time my question is depends you know if i'm working on a gig then probably not but if not i'm wide open and it is difficult for a lot of with you know i've seen this difficulty arise with a lot of people where it's not easy to give up the identity that we tie to our professions, to what we do, like who, what we do defines who we are. And I think that is something I will discourage my kids from ever thinking, like, don't let that define you, because it needs to be the other way around, that who you are and what is important to you should define what you do and inform what you do. And, uh, and then leave the rest up to them. Because honestly, I, I tell my kids that, you know, I decided and I did things that made sense to me. And I want you guys to have that same Joy. Cool fact a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget friendly coverage for you. Learn more at uh1.com. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. 
LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. As creators, we're always on the move. Whether it's a live podcast event, a pop-up shop, or a workshop, we're constantly interacting with community, and that's where Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe comes in. Imagine this, you're at a live event, a listener loves your merch, or a participant wants to sign up for your course on the spot. With Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe, you can accept their payments right there and then, right from your iPhone so there's no extra hardware or no delays. Total game changer. It's not just for creators. Any business owner can do this. It's about making transactions smoother and much more personal, growing your business in your way. We've been using Stripe for our products and courses for a long time, and now with Tap to Pay on iPhone, you can take your business to the next level too. So visit stripe.com slash tap iPhone to learn more. Remember folks, with tap to pay on iPhone and Stripe, your business is always at your fingertips. Hmm, I love that. Uh, so let's do this. Let's, let's shift gears and let's talk specifically about um, the films you create. I think something that really caught my attention is, is you know, what are we showing on screens, um, particularly when we're portraying Indian women in the media? Um, it, it's interesting. You know, that really caught my attention because, you know, when I think about Indian filmmakers um, that, you know, I, I've seen or, or even authors, you know, people like Jhumpa Lahiri who wrote The Namesake, which, you know, to me, that was an incredibly accurate depiction of life as an Indian American boy written by a woman. Right. Um, and she was also willing to tackle issues that most Indian people don't ever want to admit exist, uh, yes. you know, and same thing with Mira Nair. And so I'm curious, um, one, you know, what, what do you let's like, I'm curious what your perspective is on this and, and kind of how you choose to tell the stories that you tell. Jhumpa Lahiri is a great example. I loved her book. I loved Interpretive Maladies. I love the namesake. And I think that um, it's, it, it's it's that exact track. Um, I love her writing. I love the movies. I like the book slightly more than I like the movie, I think. Yeah. But, um, the thing that I like in the things that bother, that interest me are, um, you know, when, when people talk about Indians or Indian Americans as a community, um, the depictions are often very generalized, like, I mean, you know that there's there are 16 official languages in the country. It's a it's really a mishmash of different regions and languages and cultures. There is really no one homogenous Indian identity, and um, and the beauty of that is there's a lot of nuance in who the Indian is. And then when that Indian immigrates to the United States, from you know all the, the when we have our annual gatherings, right? everybody shows up in but the background like where they're from and how they interpret diwali for instance it's a festival of lights but the way diwali is celebrated among in gujarat in western india versus in delhi northern india or in chennai in southern india it's interpreted very differently and what i want to do is sort of highlight the nuances that exist within these within the communities within the larger picture so that you know when we see a film and 
and we see an Indian character, it's not just like, oh, Mr. Chatterjee from Gujarat. Because you know, Mr. the person from Gujarat will never be called Mr. Chatterjee. And I want to get this right. So like, for instance, and I'll tell you like Sherlock, the TV show. Hmm. Uh, I can't remember which episode it is, but I think it's one of the earlier ones. It's at the season one or two, where they have this character who falls in love with the landlady, you know, like a, a vague boyfriend character in the background. And they have this, this guy who's apparently... A, a Pakistani called Mr. Gupta. I'm, 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 not, I'm not sure if I'm getting the exact details right, yeah. but it's something like that. It had an Indian name with a Pakistani background. And I was thinking, well, uh, yeah, like Mr. Gupta from Islamabad or something. Right. You, you can't do that. You have to call him something that makes sense, you know? And um, and so those are the things that has, have been bothering me for a while now, that, oh, the details need to be right. Mm. The second thing that I personally feel very invested in is the disconnect that I sometimes see between um, the generation that immigrated back in the 60s, the generation that immigrated in the 90s. So I came to the U.S. as an adult, and um, I have evolved here as an adult. And so I've never really felt, you know, like like movies like Million Dollar Arm, where you see the kids like having trouble with the elevator. It's like, well, that's, you know, I don't, that I've never felt that. I don't know any of my friends who have felt that. So that has bothered me and i feel like we need to negotiate a space where you see the indian immigrant and and most of the most of the tech grads who have come like the wave that came in the 90s and continue to arrive they're fairly savvy when it comes to material matters you know they're really pretty comfortable adjusting to life and that's why i think part of that is why they become the model minority the trouble starts when you um or not the trouble i shouldn't say the trouble um it gets more challenging when you start building a family here because you know speaking personally i didn't go to school here i didn't go to high school here um and every time my kids you know when we have parent-teacher conferences, it's a first time for them and it's a first time thing for me too. So those are the things that interest me and I want to talk about. The other disconnect that I mentioned earlier is the generation that came here in the 60s, they have adapted and they have, you know, built a life for themselves. They've built a community for both themselves and for the waves that have come after them. What has not changed in their mind is their idea of India. Mm -hmm. And in their mind, and I again, this is a very personal interpretation. I want to stress that that um, the, the the friends I have, I've seen that their idea of India is still a version of India that used to be, and it's not anymore. And um, you know, for instance, when I bring up with my friends who are much much older than me, that the divorce rate in India has spiked, and and so has the remarriage rates, and it is not at all uncommon un- uncommon for a woman to have uh, more than one husband, and they often get along just fine. Uh-huh. Which is, you know, these are these are things that nobody talks about when we see movies about India. We see the same typical images. To give a very quick example, Lion. You know, that's the image of India that you see. And yet, urban India has seen some upheaval that I think that we should talk about. So, so these are the kind of things, the stories that I'm drawn to. And yeah. uh, and so the last, the, my most recent uh, short that I made um, is about an Indian teenager who who grows up here and how she is negotiating her identity. You know, it's always it's a constant dance that you do, right? Of who you are, who others think you should be. You know, and the, the perspectives of each other and how those intersect. Sometimes they get along, sometimes they don't get along, things like that. Yeah. 
Wow. So, so many questions come from this. Um, I, you know, the part that, that caught my attention really was that, you know, going through these things with your kids for the first time, like parent teacher conferences, um, and, and you know, it reminds me of, of this moment in eighth grade. Uh, there was a year, you know, my parents are, are obviously, you and I are similar in age, so my parents fall into that, that older generation that you're talking about. Mm-hmm. And I remember in eighth grade one year, uh, you know, we had open house at school, and I didn't tell my parents. Uh, I, just, I just conveniently forgot. And when I asked why, I said, well, you guys have accents and it's embarrassing because we live in Texas, you know, which is so silly. And they were so hurt by that. And yet I, I think they, you know, now we're looking back, they, they understand it. You know, it's it's and I remember thinking to myself, like, what kind of shithead of a kid would say something like that? <laughs> and, and I'm really curious, um, you, you, you know, being, you know, in the next generation after my parents, what's been what have been the things that have surprised you compared to your own, you know, growing up? And what have been those first time of experiences that have shocked you? I mean, my other one was, you know, my dad needing to understand how important it was to be popular. When my sister came through, they got it. They're like, oh, we've been through all this nonsense before. So. So I always feel like with immigrant parents, the first child is an experiment. Experiment. Oh, I couldn't agree more. Yes. My older son knows that I'm see, I'm, I'm more hands on with my older one because I'm learning mm-hmm. as he's learning. So he's finally he's almost 15 now. So he finally gets that. OK, this is not something I should I should just get used to this. My mom <laughs> right. a whole bunch of questions and just show up and and knows you around because yeah. she's, she's learning herself. But mm-hmm. um, I'll tell you the funny the the. the biggest learning point that I remember is when my older son started kindergarten, you know, years ago. I went to school in India where your parents never go to school. Like they would drop me off and they would pick me up. And that was that was that. I can't remember a time when my my mother or my father actually came inside and actually, you know, like talked, like showed up in the classroom and talked to the parents. Um, we had like what they call sports day or field day. It was an annual uh, event, and that was that was the time when they would come and and participate, and that was it. So my son started kindergarten, and um, and I was, you know, I was working full time. So I my classes started at 7:30 a.m. So he would go to the before school whatever the day that care thing was and um and then i would pick him up after school after i finished teaching so i didn't meet his teacher for the first i'd say six months and then we had a first parent teacher conference and she was extremely upset she was very upset that i didn't show up in the classroom at all it's like this is your child this is your child's classroom why are you never here and I was baffled. It's like, what do you mean why I'm never here? Am I supposed to be here? No one told me that. So so that was the moment where I realized that this is a whole new world with completely different rules that I didn't know anything about. And I have to, you know, I have to do this differently, that the way things worked with my parents are not going to be the way things will, will work here. Yeah. So obviously, then I went the other way, and I was in the present in the classroom quite a bit, and and then my son was like, okay, you know, you don't have to be at every single, you know, art gallery event that we do in my classroom. So um, so I've learned to like sort of so with the second child, it's easier, you know, he's yeah. he's yeah. not felt so much parent pressure, yeah. but that was a learning moment. Um, the other learning moment was the importance of PTA. See, PTAs, and I don't know, again, if this has changed in India in the last few decades, but when I was a kid, there was no PTA. <laughs> there is no such thing. And yeah, um, yeah. we didn't, I didn't know 
exactly how much influence and impact a PT can have in a public school. Hmm. And I learned that. And of course, you know, once you get involved and you see the, see the amount of work it can do, then, then I was very energized. And I, I was very involved and I was, you know, involved in the auction committee and doing all that because I love, I love being with kids and, you know, seeing the, make, seeing the difference that an organization can make. That's very exciting. But it was a learning curve. So yeah. I guess those are two big examples. So I want to look at it from the other perspective. What, um, what have been the challenging issues for your son, the older one, um, you know, from a cultural perspective? Like, where have you had culture clash with him? Because I know I've had, you know, the accent was one of many things with my parents. Oh, yeah. Um, see, the, the accent, yeah, the accent has, uh, I've never, I've, my accent is a mishmash, you know, yeah. because yeah. I have I've moved around quite a bit. So um, I haven't got too many accent questions. I do get a, every now and then I get a comment of, oh, your English is so good. And it's just, again, it's like very confusing. <laughs> At first, I used, to, I used to genuinely be confused. Like, oh, really? And then now I just get very snarky and I feel like I tell them like, well, so is yours. Your, your English is really good. And, and that sort of stops the question there. But uh, boy, my, I think with my older child, his, his journey has been more of um, figuring out the balance between being Indian, like, you know, being Indian and being American, because, you know, he's seen as obviously as an Indian American. And oftentimes, in the younger grades, there was an assumption that he would know certain things. And while we go back to India, you know, every two years and visit grandparents, it's not it's more a journey of, you know, seeing family and you keep in touch with family. It's not, I, we never made a concerted effort. And this could be a, a judgment on my parenting, but we never made a concerted effort to drill into his head um, the ancient texts and and things like that, the history and the mythology, because I felt that, you know, if he really genuinely felt interested after watching a TV show or something, he will ask me questions. I want that to come from him. And if he does not feel that pull towards learning ancient Indian mythology, I'm okay with it. Yeah. That, yeah. you know, that he just knows the name of Hanuman without knowing who or what that thing is. Um, but in school, there was always, especially like things like multicultural nights, there was always a question like, oh, would, would your son like to talk about India? And, and, you know, my son most definitely did not want to talk about <laughs> India. And I think the thing that he, he likes playing the piano. So, you know, if somebody asked him, would you like to play the piano? He probably would have said yes. Yeah. But nobody would ask him that. And so that's been a, a bit of a, you know, earlier, earlier classes, I would push like, why don't you want to talk about your background? Because it's kind of fun. And we're kind of cool. We're not totally uncool. Um, and I've, I've stopped doing that because I feel it's, you know, it's his decision what he wants to talk about. So I would guess that that would be one of the things mm. um, that's been a challenge. Um, the other challenge, of course, is um, the way we bring up our kids. And this is, again, a personal thing is the way we I'm bringing up my kids is fairly different from the way I was brought up. And sometimes the questions like, like, you know, why does not, why, why aren't you teaching your children more about India and Indian stories? And it comes from my parents. Like, you should do this. This is part of your responsibility as a parent. And I feel that, you know, reading and learning, these are things that needs to come from inside. And I don't want to make my child read a book. I want him to be curious. And then if he's curious, then let him read the book, you know? So there's been a bit of a give and take with my parents, like, okay, you guys need to understand that, that this is the line and this is how I'm going to do things. So I'm, I must say that the distance helps being, mm -hmm. <laughs> being far away helps. Um, 
But those are some challenges of of bringing up a family, I'd say. I'm trying to think. Does that answer what you were Oh, asking? yeah, yeah. It, it actually raises another question, um, which I think will, will segue perfectly into what I want to talk about next. But do um, you ever think about the, the notion of losing heritage as a byproduct of this? Because, you know, my parents taught me to speak Telugu. I have not spoken to them in Telugu probably in the better part of 10 years. You know, they say, ask me something in Telugu, I respond in English. Um, the only person I ever speak to in Telugu is my grandmother. I see her once every 10 years. And I can tell you there are a lot of things that I'm not going to do. I'm not going to be religious because I find it time consuming. Um, there are a lot of traditions that I know are going to be lost uh, as a byproduct of just kind of who I am as a person. And they're not going to get passed on. And, and I'm curious if, if that crosses your mind in this process at all, especially as somebody who makes films, which I see in a lot of ways uh, as a form of preserving heritage absolutely and you know so let me let me say this 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 i i absolutely have thought about this i have actually talked about this uh because my kids don't speak an indian language but they do speak french and so the interesting thing is what is heritage you know like cultural identity is not you know it's not a monolith it's not a static thing and um like the kind of Indian that I am, for instance, I, I, I'm a Bengali. I use Bengali only when I call my parents. And increasingly, it's peppered with English. So, you know, the, the percentage of Bengali and English is, I'd say, 60-40 right now. So does that mean I'm any less of a Bengali? Does that mean because I don't, you know, I don't, I, I don't always go to the Diwali gatherings or like recently Saraswati Puja happened a few weeks ago. And I was not able to attend. And my friends know this. But does that take away? So... I feel that this whole idea of what makes an Indian, what makes an Indian American, it's a shifting thing. And we, I personally feel very comfortable saying that I'm very much an Indian. I know, like for instance, you know, my definition of being an Indian is I understand the meanings of most names of my friends. And if a person has an Indian name, I know what that means. And that I have found is not often the case with people who are very... Religious, for instance, who are very particular of maintaining the norms. So when I'm asked that question, I usually say, well, what does that what does culture mean for you? Because if you are happy, if you think that you are maintaining those, def- you know, like the parameters as you define them, then you are an Indian and it should be seen as Indian because there is no one. You know, like we said, there is no one homogenous entity that's Indian heritage, Indian culture. And I think that can apply to all cultures that as we grow and as we move and as we mix with other cultures, it evolves and that does not take away. So this is something that I've also been talking about with my non-Indian friends, that it does not take away from what I bring to the table as an Indian, you know, whatever we add, whether you are adding another foreign language, whether you're adding another Indian language, it just enriches it further. So your version of Indian, for instance, right, whether you speak Telugu or not, and my version of Indian, whether I speak Bengali or not, and then my kid's version, it's all Indian. You can't take away the India out of it. What it is, it's a whole new version. And, um, and that is exciting because when my son goes to a third country, and presents his perspective of growing up as an Indian American, you know, that's just, it just creates, it just enlarges the spider web. You know, the network just gets more and more. And the more we have people becoming familiar with things, doesn't matter what it is. You know, it's it's a variation of the same theme sort of thing. The more become, the more people become familiar with it, the better it is. I feel that we need to be familiar and comfortable with many different cultures and not see them as something exotic, as something 
outside as the other. You know, we need to be comfortable saying that, yes, my son is an Indian American. His best friend is, you know, Thai American. We're all different people and we're all very similar in many different ways, Hmm. you know. And those two can blend and they can create a third or a fourth or fifth entity. And I don't know if this makes sense. But to me, I like to embrace things rather than say, because keeping things out, you know, keeping things out, trying to preserve something is never a good idea. It does not last and it does not help anything. Hmm. Does that make sense? Yeah. Absolutely. So I want to finish by talking um, specifically about, you know, things that we portray on screen in terms of um, India and Indian Americans. You know, I, I think you you hit on something for me personally that I'm really curious about. You said, you know, uh, divorce rates are common in India, right? And I'm curious why that has not become, you know, portrayed in the mainstream media Um in India, I mean, you know, like Bollywood films to me seem to follow a pretty sort of standard formula. Somebody, you know, cries, somebody sings a song about it, somebody dies, somebody sings a song about it, and somebody falls in love, and somebody sings a song about it. Uh, but, you know, you're talking about issues that, you know, I, I think we've tended to sweep under the rug um, and really never wanted to admit exist, even though they do. And I, I'm curious why you think it is that we haven't made a, a much more concerted effort to portray these kinds of issues in media, particularly, um, you know, when Indians are portrayed in the media. Um, and I think that that's about change is what I'm what I'm hoping and I'm looking forward to. Uh, I think that there's a national narrative that um, you know, the, the not national, the dominant narrative that um, has has been preserved and encouraged. And like you said, you know, if it does not fit the narrative that's been created, then it gets shoved under the rug. Um, and that's that's that was Bollywood in the 70s, 80s, 90s for me, where women were seen as objects and nothing more. And um I find it it's very it's very encouraging that the more women have gone out to work and not stopped working after marriage. I think that was the turning point, I would say mid 90s, where economic independence was directly connected to having a very strong sense of self. And that has obviously had its impact on the family and the, on the nuclear family, because um when, you know, when I was young, the idea was that if you were going to live in India, in, in, in Bengal, for instance, a woman oftentimes would work up until her marriage and then she would stop working and take care of the family. And I think that has changed completely in urban India. And I must we must be sure that, you know, all of this talk about divorce and everything, the changing family, it's all urban India in my experience. Um, I think rural India has probably stayed more or less the same. But in urban India... The narrative is so different now where women not only continue to work, but they maintain a very strong, independent um, entity, you know, who they are and who they want to stay. And that helps negotiate the conversation with, you know, future in-laws or extended family. And I think that has both strengthened the position of the woman, of women in society and also of the wife and mother in the family that just because a, a mother is not necessarily somebody who stays at home. And I think that the, the kids who are growing up in India right now in cities like Kolkata, they understand that and they are perfectly OK with that because, you know, everybody, every new idea takes a little bit of time and then people get used to it. And then we come to the point where how was this any different? Can you imagine? So I find that fascinating and I want to see that on screen. The reason we don't see that on screen as much yet I think is because it's still relatively, I mean, I don't know of any American films that even 
talk about it or even know about it. You know, the, we're still stuck in the place where India or you know countries, exotic countries like African countries or Morocco. We're still we still see the same old stereotypical images of either poverty or or exotic, you know, like dancing and singing or or desert. To go beyond that and to look at the actual, the ground reality, the nuances of day-to-day living in Mumbai or Marrakesh. You know, that's, that's what is interesting. And I think it's happening a little bit in independent cinema, but it'll be a long time before we see it in Hollywood because it has to trickle down from Bollywood, which is still dominated by the old narrative. So change is happening. I see that in some of the films, um, like, you know, like st- narratives of, um, uh, of women making a choice of who they marry. And I was you know, on a recent flight back from um, from visiting family. I watched uh, this old, well, it's not old, it's about two years old, uh, a Bollywood film called Rangoon, which is very much, you know, about singing and dancing and, and story of love and despair and all that. But it did have a woman trying to decide who she loves. And instead of that being decided for her, by circumstances. And I found that very interesting, like, oh, they're, they are giving this character some agency. So it's happening. It's going to take a little bit more time. And that's where I find, like, you know, that's my job, that I need to step up. And if I'm serious about the things I'm passionate about, and I'm, you know, being committed to representing Indian Americans on film, then that's a great spot, space to be in, that there is all these things that we have yet to discover and talk about. So it's coming. Wow going to be my next film well well i I think that makes a really uh fitting end to our conversation so i want to finish with my final question which i know you've heard me ask what do you think it is that makes somebody or something unmistakable oh yeah i've heard that question and um i think my my word for me is commitment and confidence that um whatever we do we should not do it halfway that we should do it completely seriously and take that as you know it's it's a it's a it's a commitment you have to make sure that whatever it is for me it's filmmaking um for somebody else like you know for my old friends it's teaching that is all that needs to be done and um and then to have faith that like for instance uh, being a filmmaker is 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 not easy being a filmmaker at 40 is is very difficult so sometimes there are moments when i just want to curl up in a corner and say like what am i doing and those are the exact same moments when I tell myself that it's important to not lose faith in your ability to do things and in also that, you know, that things do get better if one does it consistently. So, um, yeah, that's what makes a person unmistakable is when you commit to something and you have confidence in yourself that this can this can actually happen. Awesome. Um, well, like I said, this has been really, really thought provoking and, and beautiful. Where can people find out more about you and your work? So on my website, it's uh, www.sudeshnasen.com. And, um, and I'm also um, on IMDb, which is the filmmaking site. So, yeah, I am always excited to hear about, pe- I know, get feedback from people and um, hear more stories. So that's where you find me. Awesome. And for everybody listening, we will wrap the show with that. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Unmistakable Creative Podcast. While you were listening, were there any moments you found fascinating, inspiring, instructive, maybe even heartwarming? Can you think of anyone, a friend or a family member who would appreciate this moment? If so, take a second and share today's episode with that one person, because good ideas and messages are meant to be shared. 
Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Have you ever felt a twinge of worry about AI taking over your job or diluting your creativity? Well, what if you could turn that fear into creative fuel? We've just published an amazing new ebook called The Four Keys to Success in an AI World. And this is more than just a guide. It's a deep exploration into the human skills that AI can't touch. The skills that are essential for standing out and thriving, no matter how much technology evolved. We're talking about real differentiators here, like creativity, emotional intelligence, critical thinking, and much more. Inside, you'll find actionable insights and strategies to develop these skills, whether you're a creative person, a business person, or just simply someone who loves personal development. This isn't a story about tech taking over. It's a story of human creativity thriving alongside AI. Picture this, AI as your creative co-pilot, not just as a tool, but a collaborator that enhances your unique human skills. The Four Keys ebook will show you exactly how to do that and view AI in a new way that empowers you instead of overshadows you. Transform your creative potential today. Head over to unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys. Use the number four, K-E-Y-S. That's unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys and download your free copy.